Praise God. It's again that wonderful time where we take our Bibles and open His Word and just consider the richness of His truth together. I ask you to return with me to Acts chapter 16 this morning. Acts chapter 16. And when we take up God's Word, uh, particularly as we work our way through narrative sections of Scripture, um, there are rich times where at times we get to take big chunks of passages and, and work our way through and see the work that God did and the places that God took uh, Paul or whoever is the individual there and, and, and learn different things as we go. And then there's sometimes from that normal progress uh, of, of that, what we might call um, that exegesis of, of an entire passage, where we just got to step back and, and look a little theologically at something within this, because it puts pieces together that help us understand this passage and help us understand a multitude of other things. And so it, since in chapter 16, this theme comes up predominantly, and it's an oft misunderstood theme, we want to glorify God today thinking about what the scripture reveals concerning households, family, flesh, and faith. So listen as I read God's word, then we'll pray and seek through the scriptures to understand this more accurately. I'm going to be, read first of all Acts 16, verse 14 and 15, and then 30 to 34. So Acts 16, verses 14 and 15. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Acts 16, now beginning in verse 30. Then he brought them out. This is the Philippian jailer. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour and washed their wounds, and he baptized them at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house, and he set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's pray. Lord, we just call out to you this morning. Our desire whenever we open your word is that we would draw near to you and that you would draw near to us. Lord, there are times that you use your word to um, correct our path, our actions, our wrongdoings, convict us of sin and our deeds. There are times that your word is designed to correct wrong understandings and misconceptions. Lord, we pray that you would always use your word to help us, your people, grow. And Lord, as we take up this subject today that uh, at times can be misunderstood and, and misconstrued, Lord, I pray that you'll help me um, to faithfully unfold your word and set it clearly before the saints in a way that is uh, understandable and in a way that is encouraging to their hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So this is the section that's, that speaks twice in this chapter of households and also of what some might call household baptisms. Now you've probably interacted at some point somewhere with someone who has that practice. And, and we're aware of, of, of groups of individuals who will, because this child has been born to these believing parents, they will take that child and they will put him into some kind of circumstance where maybe they'll sprinkle a little bit of water on him or maybe they'll pour some water on him or maybe just dip a finger and, and, and make a mark. But something, and they often uh, do that to the child. And I've interacted with a lot of these, uh, many of whom are dear brothers in the faith. People who held those views would be even such faithful men in some senses, like an R.C. Sproul and, and, and others. But the challenge often comes is, is, is what will come in their language will be something like this. Well, since under the Old Covenant, uh, the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision was given to believers and their children. In the new covenant also, we will give the sign of baptism to believers and their children. Now, what, which sounds very logical, but one of the problems that just entered in is, what I spoke was not accurate. In the old covenant, it was not given to believers and their children. It was given to Jews and their children. Already by substituting the word believers with Jews, it's preparing for a misunderstanding in advance. And I want us to begin to look today to understand these things um, as the scriptures uh, present to us the idea and the understanding of households. And I want us to note this, there are two definitions of households. There is the household of the flesh, and there is the household of faith. Now note this, just because we're going to see that with regard to the saving promises and work of God, the household of the spirit, the household of faith, is the one that bears eternal significance. That does not cancel out the importance of our own households according to the flesh as well. And so the first thing I do want to point out, even looking through the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, is the scripture lays out certain family commitments that ought to be prevalent among us all. Among those, I take it up first in Deuteronomy chapter 4. It says this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Only take care to the Jews as Moses is at the end of his life and reminding them of the, the requirements of the law for the covenant that is upon them. Take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. Because here's the reality. Those who had been 20 and younger as they came out of Egypt were permitted to continue to live and then enter into the promised land. Those who had been 20 and over because of their disobedience, they all died in the wilderness except for Joshua and Caleb. And that includes Aaron. That includes Moses. 
Okay? And so, but they had seen the, the deliverance. They had heard the voice speak from the mountain. They had seen those mighty manifestations of gloom and fire and lightning and earthquakes and the earth opening up and swallowing, swallowing Dotham and his family. Quails circling the camp as far as you could walk over knee high. Water flowing out of a rock. Bitter water suddenly becoming healthy and drinkable. Just mighty, miraculous things they had seen. But the next generation wouldn't have seen those things. They wouldn't have experienced those things. They, there's only one way that they would know those things. These who had some revelation of God's being and power and deliverance needed to make known to their children and their children's children God's being, power, and deliverance. That message needed to be communicated, and that reality stands even now. What God has done for us, and I, and I will say this, you know, let's not mistake this. Sometimes we look back and we see all those quail, manna from heaven gathered to be eaten, uh, stare at a serpent, a brass serpent, and suddenly you're healed of the venomous disease. How do the, we think God's power was so profoundly at work among them. I tell you this, that's not as glorious as the deliverance he has given us. The deliverance of them from slavery in Egypt and the delivery of us from slavery to sin, there's really no comparison. We see all those profound manifestations of power and they point to what is greater. As with Moses, there is a greater mediator in Christ. And as there was the old covenant, there is a better covenant with better promises. When you move forward, things only get more magnificent. So, when, when they were those who should tell what was amazing to their children and children's children, how much more should we tell them? And more than that, help them understand what's so hard for people to understand. It's not all about this life. It's not all about this time. It is about eternity. I mean, we, we can rise up and we can make all kinds of noise, but I will tell you this, many of those who are today clamoring for some form of justice, and I understand that, but really, do any of them want to stand before the justice and judgment of God? Because if we do, outside of the forgiveness and righteousness that is ours by union with Christ by faith, all men are condemned. Oh, it's, it's easy to rise up and condemn others. And they deserve being condemned for the wrong they do. But what's sad is so many who so, are so condemning to what they see in the world, do not understand that they themselves 
are under condemnation. And we've got to continue to make that known. And we've got to let that be known to our children and to our children's children. And when we have circumstances like we have in the world today, it again, uh, every moment all of life becomes for us, oft with our children, a teaching moment. Everything becomes a teachable moment in a sense, doesn't it? Because you, you, you take all things captive to Christ. I mean, I, I love the way... Um, that the scriptures lay this out in Deuteronomy 6, verse 7. It says this, uh, you shall teach them diligently to your children. So this has to be something you're committed to. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now, yes, it does not mention when you go on road trips but is that not included in the context of, of this language? It's as you come, as you go, as you sit, as you lie, as you rise, as you eat, at all times, take those opportunities to speak of God, of Christ, of His glory, His existence, His priority, His power, and His deliverance. We must speak of those things. Family commitments, as we move forward into the New Testament, it presses these ideas strongly. It even says this in 1 Timothy 5.8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially the members of his household. All right? So we still have a household of flesh that we have an earthly responsibility to. If someone does not do that and provide and take care of in those ways, the scripture says in 1 Timothy 5, 8, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, that's very interesting language. Worse than an unbeliever and denied the faith. Now, listen, what's the ultimate condition of an unbeliever? Good or bad, it's going to be bad for them. And they have demonstrated by what they're doing, they've denied the faith. There are those who will profess the faith with the mouth, but they deny him by their deeds. And their condemnation will be just. And the, so the scripture reminds us that we still live in this world. We, and while we're in the flesh, we take care of those that God has put around us who are of our household of the flesh. We provide for them. We instruct them. We speak of God. Ephesians 6 puts it this way. Children, obey your parents. So children have family commitments. Parents have family commitments. Husbands and wives have family commitments, even if at some point along the way, one becomes a believer and one remains not, if in the providence of God, he is pleased to keep them together, then they continue to show love as best they can. It may be that the unbelieving husband, the scripture says, might be won by the conduct of his believing wife. It says this, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right you know and i love that and i do want to remind all the children who happen to be there here obey your parents in the lord why 
for it is right. You know, I remember uh, there's a part of us because of the society in which we're raised that at times uh, an instruction will be given to a child and and the question will come, why do I have to do that? You know, my, my father was oft wonderfully clear, and it was as simple as this, because I said so. <laughs> now, that ought to be enough. Uh, but again, in those contexts, we can also direct it Godward. Because to obey me, even if you don't understand the why I'm saying to do this, to obey me is right in the eyes of God. And so you will please God, even if you're not so into pleasing me at this moment. But God will be pleased. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Again, discipline and admonition of the Lord. Discipline is good, which is in in this language. Now, the King James there says nurture, which is really sweet. But the word here is the word more properly translated discipline. It's a form of discipline that might have a little bit of punishment and pain associated with it. Okay? So, discipline and admonition of the Lord. God help us always in the discipline and instruction of our kids to not only make it about us, not only make it about their brothers and sisters and fellow students and friends, but also continually remind them we live before the face of God. We want to do what's right in His eyes. Discipline and admonition of the Lord. We want them to get this sense that you, you do realize that everything, not only under heaven, but even in heaven and in the heaven of heavens, everything is in the sovereign sway of God. I mean, He is the ruler and master of it all. And any of the hosts of heaven who have been so haughty to think that they might disobey his purposes, will they not also stand judgment? They will, as well as all men. And so it's important for us to understand that. Even at times we get all caught up and captivated with what happens in our own world and in our own governments. But I will tell you this, whatever forms of injustice and brutality that take place in the country in which we live, and it does to some degree. Brothers and sisters, there are times and places and countries where the severity and scope has been unknown to our nation's little brief history. Not to make light of the miseries that have taken place, but for us to understand, listen, wicked kings... Wicked prime ministers, wicked presidents, wicked rulers, uh, wicked, wicked military, wicked whatever, all must answer to God. 
And so we want to make sure that our kids are known of that uh, and aware of these things. Now listen, because in this context, we not only have the scripture telling us about our family commitments to our family in the flesh, but also warnings of family compromises. For example, it says this in 2 Kings uh, chapter 17, verse 41. So these nations uh, feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Is that compromise acceptable? Surely not. But here's the frightening part. Look what follows that. Their children did likewise. And their children's children. You know what? One of the, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. There is something tragic about bad examples. We see it all around us. You know, where we talk about the sins of the father will be visited on the son and visited on the son. And and they continue to have that. And what's amazing is sometimes, say, a a child who's grown up in a home where there has been uh, a a temper-ridden individual prone to extreme expression of that anger will maybe say to themselves, I am not going to be like that. And yet, what tends to come most naturally in the moments of anger? And, and we've maybe experienced ourselves, or we've seen it around us, and we recognize the way that sin works. I've got to tell you, look, uh, bad company corrupts good morals. Sin is exceedingly contagious. Sin is, it, it, it has an, a profoundly powerful example. So we've got to be wise and careful. Now listen, but can God absolutely change the direction by His grace? Someone can be born into the most vile and wicked of circumstances, and God can absolutely redeem them and bring them out of that. To where you would look at them as a new creation in Christ and say, there is nothing of their family, nothing of who they were that is there. Now we see far more of the evidence of the influence of Christ. And it's as if the influence of the flesh is gone from them. Grace has that wonderful power. So we see that there are family commitments and we've got to be cautious and careful of family compromises. I mean, this is one of the challenges. You've heard these kind of things. Does it do any good for parents to tell their kids, look, um, you shouldn't smoke if the parent is a smoker. You shouldn't curse and correct them and stop them every time they curse, but then they're overhearing on the telephone or whatever that kind of language. They may learn to restrain it in the presence of the parents so that they don't get corrected. But what's happening when they get out? So bad example has a powerful effect. What's remarkable is this. A good example still needs the grace of God. It really does. Because you can give a good example, good example, faithful instruction in the home, and yet the the, the kids still hear other things and still see other things. And I'll tell you this, 
as, as much as we try in this present world, we can't entirely isolate and insulate them from the world. As much as we may try, they're going to come across others. Sometimes when in places we think are safe contexts, they're going to come across things and, and you'll be shocked at how, how able children are to overcome parental controls in, uh, in uh, phones and iPads and, and, and so on like this. You know, and, and how interestingly enough, at times, some of the things that we might think are innocuous and unimportant are significant. I remember at one point during even our children's childhood, which seemed so long ago, thinking, what happened to cartoons? You know, because, I mean, just, just coming past and listening to these two characters going at each other and, and thinking, wow, this is a terrible example, that, that, and, and it just becomes so natural. So let's be aware of, of those, those compromises. Now, I want us to, to now move on to a different thought, the idea of family connections and covenants. This is where it can get a little bit murky, and I want to uh, help us understand this. Remember, when uh, uh, Moses asked God to, for his glory to pass before him, it says in Exodus 34, these things, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and some versions translate that, for thousands of generations, but don't stop reading there. Because it also says this, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. All right. So some of our dear brothers who, who, who sprinkled their babies and call it baptism and such, uh, uh, they will focus on the passages in the scripture that say, to them and to their children's children. They're in the covenant to them and their children's children. Well, be aware it also says the iniquity will also pass on to their children and their children's children. And uh, this is not something that is as desirable. I mean, it's kind of like we live in a world in which uh, oft times when a uh, a loved one passes, a, a parent of some kind, they may leave something to the children. And I would, have, I would ask you this. If the person who passes leaves debt, how much clamoring there is there among the children? Let me take care of it. Let me, let me cover it. I have a doubt that that's ever happened. That anyone's ever clamoring to say, let me take full responsibility for all that was owed. No, no, no. But, so, so we don't think we should bear any obligation to the mistakes and debts that went before us. But, if they got a little bounty, <laughs> they got a little excess, a little overflow, we think we deserve that. We think we've got a claim on that. It, you know, so 
You get that, right? I mean, it's a, it's a natural tendency. We don't fight over the debt. We fight over the things that we want, which were either of those actually ours? Did we actually work for any of them? No. So if we get something, praise be to God. If we don't get something, still praise be to God. You know, if we are wronged and defrauded, which sadly happens often in this world, everyone answers to God. But our priority is always going to be honoring God in everything that we say and everything that we do. Now listen, uh, uh, so we see this idea, children and children's children. So how does this, how do we understand this moving forward? And it's interesting, we looked briefly at it this morning. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bible, and I'm hoping you've got it, to Ezekiel chapter 18. Sometimes we, we do have challenges understanding the scripture because it's written in a different culture than ours and in a different circumstance than ours. For the Jew, in the days that Ezekiel prophesied, their understanding is this. If the parents owed something, that kid owes it. Their kids owe it. If, the parent, if, if there is benefit that overflows, they get it. They had such a view of the family connection that they felt like we, it should be unbreakable. And in Ezekiel here in chapter 18, as well as we'll see in Jeremiah 31, in preparing them for what will be a new covenant mindset, he's indicating to them, your understanding does not hold up and you got to get rid of that because God's way is just not what your culture says is just now see we don't know we, it's harder for us because we're on the other side look if just as a bad example I hope my father doesn't watch this but if he had went to prison and had 20 year term and then he passed away at 15 I'm not thinking I owe five. The Jews would. Five is still owed. Get in there, boy. That's, that's the sense. Where, and God is saying here in, in chapter 18, and we live in an, in an age that's been influenced by the correction of scriptures so that we're not caught in that mentality as much. But for example, it says this, verse 3. Actually, I'll go to 18 verse 2. God says to them, what do you mean by repeating this proverb in the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes. The children's teeth are set on edge. We do it, and they get the consequences. Well, God says this, verse 3. As I live, declares the Lord. Now, I just want to ask you, when God's about to make a promise, and he prefaces it with, as I live, oh my, because he has always lived, will always live, everything that lives only lives because he lives. So, I mean, 
there's, this, is, this is not a maybe I'm committed to this thing. This is an absolute thing. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used in Israel. Down in verse 19 of chapter 18. Yet you say, now this is where, where God says, look, if you, got, if you got a righteous man, and then he has an unrighteous kid, that, un, that righteous man is going to live by the righteous that he did under the old covenant, and the, and the, and the wicked son is going to die for what he did. And if you got a wicked dad, he dies for his wickedness. And a son that doesn't follow his dad's wickedness, he's going to live. So God is disconnecting that family continuity of judgment of, of what would have even at that point in their minds been of covenant continuity of the family. He's disconnecting those things. Even more so, blessedly, this passage, even to a degree, disconnects me from earlier me. In the sense it says, if, if I happen to be one who do wickedness, and then I come by the grace of God to stop doing wickedness and to do what's right, then my wickedness will not be remembered and I will live. So I'm so thankful that woven into this are not only, uh, ultimately, it's not the consequences merely of my fathers, but we will all stand before God's on the basis of deeds we've done in the flesh. And then I'm so thankful that I don't have to worry about standing before him for all of my sins and all of my iniquities. That this passage reminds that there are some because of a righteous working of God. Who their wickedness will not be brought against them when the time comes. But here's the warning of this. Use, verse 19. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? See, in their minds, hey, daddy did it. Son gets it. That's it. To them, that's fair. To us, I think that still sounds unfair. But note their way of thinking. And then look at verse 25. When God explains all this to them, it says this, Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. To say that the son's not going to ultimately answer for the father's deeds, but he's going to answer for his own. The, the one who is righteous will live, and the one who is wicked will die. To put it on the basis of the individual and what they do, they're saying, God, you're not just to do that. Now, a lot of that would probably come in when daddy's been righteous, and thus, in, under the old covenant, prospered, and it's been passed on to the son, and then it's all taken away because of his wickedness. Well, that ain't right. Well, it is right, because he does not deserve that. That's why down verse 30, says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord, so repent. Again, remind you even going further, it says this in Jeremiah 31, In those days, promising the new covenant, uh, the father, no one will ever say, will any longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own sins. I will make with them a new covenant, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. 
Now go on with me to, to one more important verse. So under the original working of God within the household of Israel, there was a strong connection according to the flesh, right? Sin on your children, iniquity will be visited to the third and fourth generation. Blessing to the thousandth generation upon faithfulness and obedience. But listen, we saw that Ezekiel 18 and Jeremiah 31 begin to present it's not going to have those same flesh connections moving forward into the new covenant. Indeed, when Jesus comes in the flesh, he says this in Luke chapter 12, verse 51. And this is, this is absolutely striking because he says this, Do you think that I have come to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, see, under the old covenant, the thought was, to me and my house, you know, what, did, what was Joshua's response? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, I ask you this. We can say that, but do we have the power to actually make our children serve the Lord? Don't we wish we did? We do. We can pray, but God alone has that power. And Jesus says, no, from now on in one house, there will be five Divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and so on and so on. Now, have you ever experienced this? Yes, it happens. But what, what, what's interesting to note, this is just a, an absolute blasting. Because coming into the, the new covenant and what Christ is coming to a, a accomplish, what he's saying is, your expectations for households according to the flesh, they don't hold up. This is not a household covenant anymore. It's not designed that way. Indeed, moving forward, houses will be divided one against another. Matthew even says it this way. To give a sense of strength to this, um, when they come to him in Matthew 12 and say, Jesus, your mother and brothers are here, he says in Matthew uh, uh, 12, verse 48, he replied to the man who told him this, he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Scripture says, and then stretching out his hand toward his disciples, okay, his mother and brothers are at the door trying to come in and see him, stretching it out, hand out towards his disciples, he says this, here are my mother and my brothers. Wow, that's a very strong, because what he's indicating is in the workings of God, there is going to be, with regard to spiritual realities and the promises of the new covenant, flesh is set aside and faith takes central stage. Even he goes on to uh, 
say this. Actually, I love what it says in verse 50 because it connects to what we said a few weeks ago. Here are my mother and my brothers. Verse 50, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Wait a second. How come Jesus didn't say whoever believes in me? He said, whoever does the will of my father. Because listen, that's the beauty of it. Whoever believes in him by the grace of God will by the same grace at work within him do the will of the father. They live no longer for the desires of the flesh, but for him who suffered in the flesh and gave up his flesh that they might have life. And so the scriptures will, will lay it out in those ways that cause us to scratch our head when we shouldn't say, oh, Jesus misspoke. No, 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 he didn't misspeak. He spoke of the fruit of faith and union with Christ. Also noting moving forward from that, Paul writes to Timothy. And in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, he says this, to Timothy, my child, my true child, child in the faith. All right. Now, he used the word true child, which takes my child to the next level. But you would think once he says true child, then you're, are you talking about some sort of physical connection? And we know not, because Timothy's mother was a Jew, but father was a Gentile. So what Paul is indicating here, that with regard to the sense of family, under the new covenant, there is a form of family that is based on faith and not the flesh. And so to Timothy, who has come to salvation through the preaching of Paul, Paul says, my true child. In the faith. And he says it to him again in 2 Timothy 1 2, my beloved child. He says the same thing to Titus, Titus 1 4, my true child in a common faith. Indeed, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he writes to the church at Corinth and says in verse 15, or verse 14, he says, I admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. So he's carrying out, there, there's this unique sense. There is the household of the flesh, which we have certain responsibilities to. And there is the household of the faith, which bears great significance for spiritual things. And it is those who have come to faith. So in certain circumstances, praise God, someone might be both, in a sense, a father according to the flesh and, by the grace of God, had the privilege of sharing the gospel and seeing the grace of God operative in their children's life and they're, in a sense, a spiritual father. Now, he's never called Father Paul you know, he didn't show up and they called him father in that sense. He's just uh, communicating the idea, this, this idea. Even in uh, first, uh, I guess it's a third John, John writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And there he's not talking about his physical children. He's talking about his spiritual children. But for those of us who are parents, 
That's also something, isn't it? <laughs> if, our, if our physical children are also demonstrating that they are spiritual children of the Lord, spiritual brothers and sisters, how glorious is that? But listen, I uh, want to go, go on um, a little, little further here. As our, our time is beginning to collapse, so I want to... Uh, so, so not only does it break down just, just that specific uh, um, breakdown up to, in terms of flesh, but also in the flesh, people render so many different distinctions. Even among the children of Israel, you had so many different distinctions. And the scripture even so that we wouldn't get caught up in the idea of children according to the flesh. Did Abraham have only one child? He had Isaac and Ishmael, but only Isaac is that child of the promise. And did Isaac have only one child? No, no, no. He had twins. He had Jacob and Esau. And so even though you have children according to the flesh, children according to the flesh, within those two Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you have the children of the promise and the children of the promise that there's still distinction within that. Now, after the children of Jacob, all of his sons become the tribes of Israel. And it's with those tribes of Israel, those descendants, that the covenant is made through Moses at Mount Horeb. But as we come forward, we're reminded of this wonderful truth as it says this um, in verse, uh, Colossians 3.11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised. Now, I want you to, we need to remember this. We live in an era where we think there are some people who are, who, who have such messed up minds that they will look at people who are different than them and they will think they're less than them. They will think they're less than human. They'll think that they're some kind of animal. Well, that's how the Jews oft looked at others. The Syrophoenician woman says, look, even the crumbs are given to dogs. You know, it, uh, there was negative views at times of, of Jews towards the filthy, wicked, vile uh, outside of that. And strangely enough, in the Roman community, they did not look up to the Jews and think that they were the cream of the cream and the best of the best. They thought, no, they are the ones who ought to be subservient to us. And I will tell you this, men seem to tend to look to every distinction possible to draw division. You, you know, and, and they'll do it uh, even, even within tribe within tribe. Even that within neighborhood and neighborhood. And, and it just breaks down. But look what it says here. There is not Greek and Jew. Circumcised and uncircumcised. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Now note this. Generally even when we use the term barbarian, we don't use it complimenting somebody. So a lot of these, these terms, when they would speak of another person, it's, it's brutal. But in Christ, that is done. So this, this uh, 
hyper-flesh view within the family, we've got to be careful, though we have responsibilities and commitments within the family. This, this, uh, our people according to the flesh view, we've got to not let that dominate our thoughts because Christ is all in all. That's why it says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He himself, that's Christ, is our peace. He didn't bring peace in the world. There's going to be unrest in the world. But among his people, there's going to be peace with God and peace with one another. Not like with the world. And the world will run amok and they're going to think differently, but we're not going to think like them. It says this, who has, broke, uh, who has made both one, uh, bo- made us both one. So who made everyone? God, who made us a new creation, God in Christ, so we are one, though before we were not. It goes on to see, further to say this, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So for those who are in Christ, hostility no more is gone it's, it's, it's unity, it's participation. And actually, there is a sense in which our spiritual affinity and unity is more with those who are in Christ and who share the promises of faith than with those who are of the flesh. We say, no, 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 we are not going to build up that wall again. Christ has broken it down. And I'll tell you this, we live in a world that thinks, well, if we change laws and we change this and we uh, defund that, and do, then that's going to fix everything. It's not the only thing that fixes men's hearts is the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That's the only hope. Amen. And so we, we, we continue to look to that and we press on. Now listen, just a little bit more. Uh, Paul, nonetheless, still is a human in the flesh. And as such, we even heard briefly this morning, in Romans 9 and Romans 10, Paul has a heart that those who are his kindred according to the flesh, he wants them to be saved. He seems to have a burning passion that his own people would be saved. It says it there in Romans 9, it says, uh, verse 2 and 3, he says, I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I wish I could be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I'm willing to give up my salvation that many of, and many of them might be saved. That's how much he loved them. Verse 10, chapter 10, verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So if you were to talk to Paul, he'd be like, uh, look, I haven't forgotten that I'm a Jew. I haven't forgotten that. But that's not my highest priority. And what's remarkable in that, you read down in Galatians chapter 2, 7 and 8, and it says this, God made Peter the apostle to the circumcised, and he made me, Paul, the apostle to the uncircumcised, which to the non-Jew. So it's, it's interesting because there's a sense in which Paul has this, because he's still in the flesh, has this sort of link to his people and desire to see them saved. That's a strong desire on his heart, and yet God says, you know where your primary ministry is going to be? Somewhere else. What? 
And Peter is the first one who took the gospel to, the, uh, to Cornelius' house, to the Gentiles. And God says, not your primary ministry is going to be among the Jews. What? So listen, you don't follow your heart. You follow God's word. And, 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 and the path that he has for you might not be the one that you would make for yourself. Wherever he puts you, wherever he would have you, do that. And so he may take you to places like Philippi, like Asia, and pretty soon Paul is finding himself in places where there's no synagogues to start out, no Jews to begin meeting with, because God has broken down those things. Now, concluding this, so, now let's see just uh, faith, belief, and baptism. Our dear brothers who differ with us from time to time will say this. Look, we baptize babies because the New Testament speaks of household baptisms. This is what they say. Um, but uh, I just want to, we'll look briefly at those things. And you see that the household baptisms that take place are among believers. Uh, first of all, it's important to note this. Uh, Acts chapter 2. I'm going to zip through this, and, and hopefully you can uh, listen back and read these passages for yourself. Acts 2, remember when he preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost, he said, this promise is for you. What is the promise? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. That's speaking of an individual responsibility. Every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. This promise is for you. Those, all those Jews gathered who were hearing that day, what did they need to do to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit? Repent and believe. This promise is for you. This promise is also for who? Your children. What do the children need to do? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, and they will receive the Holy Spirit. And for every, all who are far off, those who are not the Jews... The Gentiles were spoken of as those who were far off. So basically, it puts the Jews, their physical children, and the Gentiles all in the same camp. Highly offensive. <laughs> and it's the camp of sinners. And it says, every single one of you, you, your children, your friends, your enemies, everyone must repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In Cornelius' house, Cornelius said this in Acts 10, 33. Now we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that the Lord commanded you. So as he comes to meet Cornelius, Cornelius isn't just sitting down and hearing the gospel. He has assembled his entire household to sit there. We are all here together to listen to what you have to share. And it says this in 1044, while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Test, quiz, who did the Holy Spirit fall on? All who heard the word. And so... And then, look at verse 47. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? So yes, Cornelius and his household were baptized, but his household did what? They all 
heard the word and received the Holy Spirit and were baptized. Not unbelieving babies. People say, but it says household. Yeah, look, maybe someday you want to visit my household. We ain't got no babies. And half of the households are more in this church. If we were to go to your household, do you have babies? Do you? No, but people like to sit back and say, it says household, so there may have been. No, no, no. This says they heard, they heard and received the Spirit. That tells me this household did not. Uh, with Lydia, where were they? Lydia is out at the place of prayer. They sat, it says in verse 13, Acts 16, and spoke to the women. Tells the details of one who heard was Lydia. And it says, verse 15, and after she was baptized, her and her household as well. Now, this will make us uncomfortable, but what is a household for her? Was she married? We don't know. Was she widowed? We don't know. We know that she had a business. And the context of household would often involve those who might be her servants, those who might be her slaves. Yes, they lived in a, a, a slave environment. It, and they would all be considered her household, even though it's very unlikely that there were any babies there. But they heard Heart was opened, was baptized. Philippian jailer, and we'll end with this. Chapter 16, he says, what must I do to be saved? Verse 30, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. How are you gonna be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. How is anyone in your household gonna be saved? They must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's making distinction there, not inclusion, and he opens it up by saying it like this, verse 32. And they spoke the word to him and to all who were in his house. Listen, and that it says in the end of verse 33, and he baptized at once, he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Well, why was his family baptized? Well, they also heard the word. They also, by grace, responded to it. Because look what it says in verse 34. And it doesn't come across as clearly to us as I'm going to help make it for us. Verse 34 says, Then he brought them into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. His household rejoiced what? that he had believed in God. They also rejoiced that they had believed in God. The word here for rejoice is a word that's not found in common Greek. It is an exclusively biblical word that refers to a deep, spiritual, exceeding rejoicing or exulting. It is, a, it is, an, it is the overflow of a spiritual heart rejoicing in God so that he rejoiced and all his household rejoiced indicates what? They all believed. So here's the important thing. I'm just bringing it to, to a simple thing. So the household baptisms are not to tell us that babies are included or even that children are included. But they are so important because after Ezekiel 18 and Jeremiah 31 and what Jesus then also says in, in Matthew and Luke, we would think, uh-oh, households are dissolved. It's going to be two against three. 
We might look at our family then and say, so which ones are going to be lost and which ones are going to be saved? Because families will now be divided. The promises are not now on united families, but that there would be divided families. So then that could stir great fear into our hearts, right? No. Jesus indicates that so that we know the flesh nature of covenant connections is broken. But I'm thankful that we also do have recorded for us a couple instances of household conversions and household baptisms. Because though the covenant is not a household covenant, sometimes the mercy of God falls on everyone within a home. So those household baptisms being recorded are important for us because after all the scripture says to bring an end to the flesh connections, it still gives us hope, hope for our households according to the flesh that God might be pleased to save them all. So family commitments to our family of the flesh, take care of them, train them, love them, lead them up. Uh, family compromises have a bad example, and that influence can carry on from, for generations. Family connections, it was according to the flesh, it is now according to the flesh. Those born according to the flesh were automatically members of the covenant, and as such received the sign of the covenant. Now it is those who are born of the Spirit by faith who are members of the new covenant, and only they rightly have the signs and symbols of the new covenant. And family considerations with the threat that families will be divided. He gives us passages that can still give us hope that his sovereign purposes still see fit at times to save the whole batch. May God have such mercy on our families. Let's pray. Lord, we just look to you. And uh, Lord, many of us have lost at times... um, loved ones, uh, parents or grandparents or uh, brothers, sisters, or even children um, that did not know you and did not know your saving grace. Lord, we pray that you would um, have mercy on our families, have mercy on our children. God, we pray that early and soon they would come to know you. God, we pray that you would stir us up with all diligence to... um, continue to direct them to you, to instruct them in the ways of the Lord. But Lord, I let our confidence not rest in the flesh, let us co- our confidence not rest in the household, even let our confidence not rest in the church. But let it rest in the power of the grace of God to bring salvation uh, to all sinners, as many as the Lord our God calls to himself. Oh God, call those that we love and help us to be diligent to seek to set Christ before them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.